Murder is a most savage violation, but rarely is it more savage than when the victim of a crime is a city itself. What follows is one of the most important few years in the history of London, but also one of the most confusing. There is so much going on over these next dozen years or so that anyone trying to forensically reconstruct the onrushing events is going to spend a lot of time second-guessing themselves. Indeed, so chaotic is the time before us, so adrift is it in an ocean of small, crucial and overlooked clues, that we are beholden to begin simply by stating the only details we can comment upon with surety. We can say that by the end of this era, the population of Londonwick was no more. It had ceased to exist. That Saxon town that had become a major trade emporium, that had mercantile links right across Europe, that had been the home to a cosmopolitan and multi-ethnic community for generations, and had been the principal trade port of Mercia, was abandoned. The population gone. Londonwick died. All that remained of this once mighty community was a few hold-ons in a hamlet now known to the locals as Old Market, or Eldwick in the local dialect, which we today pronounce as Aldwich. The population was not dead, however. They had only moved a mile away. They had relocated themselves into the vast open area behind the old Roman walls. Here the town was rebuilt and reborn and renamed Lundenburg the London Fort. We know that the move placed London under the direct control of the dynamic King of Wessex, Alfred the Great. But we do not know much more than just that. How this happened, why this happened, the exact situation between Mercia, Wessex, the Vikings and the locals remains a mystery with a plethora of unanswered questions. And it is a mystery. After all, events 1100 years ago tend to be. London, Londonwick was about to be murdered. The town was about to be killed. And while we do have an account of what directly caused it, the account was given by the man who seemingly killed it, meaning we are beholden to ask, was he telling the truth? Was the takeover and relocation of London by Alfred the Great a glorious liberation? Or was he the first person since Boudicca to have successfully destroyed London and then bragged about it? Well... Let's find out, shall we? My name is Saul, and this then is the twelfth chapter of the story of London. Who killed Londonwick?
Let us list our principal suspects, shall we? This is a murder mystery, after all, so it's best to describe what they're doing at the start of events so that the investigation can zero in on the culprit. First, there is our principal suspect, Alfred of Wessex, newly crowned king, a young man with health problems, probably Crohn's disease by the description of things. Educated, literate, with an already established track record of having survived attack by the Vikings, even if all he'd actually done was barely hold on and pay off the invaders to buy him some time. To the north, his brother-in-law, Burgred, king of Mercia. He had come to power with the support of Alfred's father, had married Alfred's older sister, and had been the most pro-Wessex Mercian king ever to hold the title. Burgred was busy trying to subjugate the Welsh, and was involved in a multi-year-long campaign with them. He didn't seem to care much for these Vikings, nor worry too much about them, content for them to take Northumbria and East Anglia, and paying them off to allow him focus on his Welsh. He seemed oblivious to their threat, and also to the possibility that not everyone in Mercia actually supported him. North of him, in the vast lands occupied and now run by the great heathen army, we have two Viking leaders of this vast body. One is called the Half-Dane, or Halfdan, who probably was born and raised in the Scandinavian diaspora of the Irish Sea, the product of generations of Scandinavians raising their children with locals, a group known to us today as the Norse Gaels. Halfdan was nominally leader of this vast horde rampaging around the English countryside, but his world began and ended with the Irish Sea. This was his home, his frame of reference, and would influence all he did going forward. Near him is the last possible suspect, and the other major leader of this Viking force, a man called Guthrum. Guthrum may or may not have been related to someone important back in Denmark. He may or may not have led an army from Denmark. For all we know, the force he led may have actually come from the Norse diaspora in Frisia, or North Francia. As I described back in Chapter 8, the organising principle of these early Vikings was a hydrachi, a small bands of warriors and their ships would follow whomever they wanted to follow, for only as long as they wanted to follow them, and then could leave without any penalty. Guthrum's actual origins would not have mattered one jot to anybody who came from the diaspora. If he had any power over his fellow Vikings, it was because they agreed to give him that power. And like all such elected leaders, one has to ask if he has power over his men, or if his men have power over him. It was the actions of these four men who caused the death of Londonwick, and as such, we actually have four competing narratives to review. All four men had differing stories, and all four men were to impact upon the town in their own unique context. So an attempt to try and piece together their oft-times conflicting priorities and experiences, I will follow each man's story in turn and allow you, dear listener, to come to your own conclusion 
about who was ultimately responsible for the murder of London Week. I will begin with the Mercian element, because as well as this period being the death of London Wick, it was also to see the death of Mercia as an independent nation. Mercia as a political force within Britain wasn't erased forever, far from it, but there would never be another King of Mercia again after this period. And since Mercia has been our companion in this podcast for the last nine chapters, I believe it deserves its final footnote in history. In 872, we have Burgred in charge of the Mercian kingdom, fighting the Welsh and making sure the great heathen army simply stayed off his back. This is probably why he paid them to keep the peace as they overwintered in London that winter, and he was entirely focused on his affairs as they returned north. Only the Vikings didn't return to the Norse. These Norse had taken Northumbria seven years earlier, but it had just risen up in rebellion against them, and they'd taken East Anglia only two years previously, and they were very worried it was about to rise up in rebellion. Now, between these two territories was the only patch of land they did not control on the east coast, the ancient kingdom and long pacified region of Mercia called Lindsay, today's Lincolnshire. The Vikings fell upon it, probably because if you held it, you were close enough to East Anglia to sail there in case they rebelled against the Vikings, and close enough to springboard into Northumbria to reclaim it back, which is what they were able to do. And then, by all accounts, they returned, marched upon Mercia, and according to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and a score of historians, Over the winter of 873 and 874, they toppled Burgred and replaced him with a yes-man of their own choosing to become king. The problem is, however, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is lying. That isn't what happened. See, the Viking force in 873, this massive horde, did indeed take up winter residence in Repton, a Mercian centre on the banks of the River Trent. This place was highly significant to the Mercian royal dynasties. It was the burial place of previous Mercian kings like Aethelbald, Wigluf and St. Wigston. It was an important dynastic bastion, but crucially for a rival dynasty to the one Burgred supposedly claimed descent from. Well, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says this Viking army then toppled Burgred and placed a man called Sjölwulf upon the throne, wherein his royal title was Sjölwulf II, a man who was to them nothing more than, quote, a foolish king thane, unquote. Some historians, especially the specialist in Mercian history, Annie Whitehead, suggested that Sjölwulf may well have been a legitimate dynastic rival to Burgred, and considering there was very little Viking activities that took place that winter, it could be that their arrival in Repton was not an invasion of a marauding force, rather the arrival of a very powerful bunch of mercenaries. Remember, Burgred had, by all accounts, only taken power with West Saxon support. They backed him. 
He had married into the royal dynasty. See, Ulwulf, if he wanted to gain the throne of Mercia, would need equally powerful backers. And who better than the great heathen army? And the events that actually took place seemed to back this theory up. As we said, the Vikings did not raid and despoil Repton. They just kind of moved in. They built a base inside the church, and over the winter, a bevy of Mercian Eildermen deserted Burgred, presumably to come to support Sjörwulf. Eventually, Burgred just abdicated the throne and fled England, supposedly aiming for Rome, but according to at least one source, he died along the way in distant Pavia. And so, in 874, King Sjörwulf II of Mercia became the last ever Mercian king. His elevation, a deliberate snub to the young King Alfred, who'd just seen his brother-in-law driven from his throne. For Whitehead, the claims that Seolwulf was merely an, quote, attendant of Burgred's, unquote, and that he swore an oath saying he would do whatever the Vikings wanted him to do, were later constructs said by Alfred and his people to badmouth Seolwulf. And the problem with their criticism is that from 874 until 879, Joel acted in all ways like he was the legitimate king of Mercia. He issued charters and gave and, and took back lands like every other king of Mercia had ever done, and there is no sign of any Danish interference. And he certainly conducts his foreign policy like he is the legitimate king. Indeed, if you compare the last two kings of Mercia, Burgred and Sjölwulf, they both sought the same foreign policy goals, to focus their military forces upon the Welsh. Burgred had kept the Vikings at bay by paying them off. Sjölwulf had kept them at bay by having them help him gain power, and probably a you-can-just-travel-through-our-lands agreement. And this military action, by the way, against the Welsh isn't just for show. In 878, Welsh and Irish sources state that the Welsh king, Rodri Moir, and his son were both killed in a battle by someone who was very probably Tjolwulf. So while the court of Wessex does seem to have issues with Tjolwulf's regime, the response wasn't, well, it wasn't consistent. Now, there exists no account of how London, for example, responded to the regime change. Not in writing, anyway. But someone put forward some theories based on coin evidence. It seems that King Alfred was producing a new type of coin around this era to cope with the fact that the chaos had caused existing currency to be debased. And so around 874, this new type of coin with a Roman design, known to us as the cross and lozenge coin, went into circulation. But the coin was also being produced by the mint in Londonwick, and London was supposedly a Mercian at this time. For some, this suggests that Alfred and Sherwolf were continuing the joint coin-producing agreement Burgred had made with the West Saxon kings, suggesting Wessex accepted Sherwolf as a legitimate king. Now, since the London coins were produced later than Alfred's one, 
Some speculate that in 874 and 875, the residents of London decided to turn away from Cheolwulf and looked to Alfred for their protection. But some have pointed out that the moneyers of London may have actually started producing coins from Wessex before King Burgred fled the country, suggesting Alfred had planned the new coins and currency in advance when Burgred was on the throne, and when Cheolwulf took over, he just carried on with his plans as changes in king come secondary to economic necessity. Whatever the case, Cheolwulf, while clearly allied to the Norse and clearly a king, around 879 or so, suddenly disappears from the record, his fate unknown, and no one would ever hold the title of King of Mercia again. Our second suspect to examine is the Norse leader, Halfdan, and here things, I am afraid, get somewhat confusing, and I advise casual listeners to strap in, as those sinking smooth waters of historical certainty are about to enter a section of white water and jagged rock, historically speaking, that is. The man we're talking about is generally called Halfdan Ragnarsson, supposedly the son of Ragnar Lothbrok, and one of the original leaders of the great heathen army. First of all, Ragnar Lothbrok probably didn't exist, and while, yes, some historians maintain the sagas based on Ragnar Lothbrok were a fiction built around a real man, many, myself included, feel Ragnar was a post-hoc justification made up by people who were used to their leaders being the children off a leader, trying to comprehend a body of people whose leaders were picked by their warriors for a short time period. What do you mean their leaders are not the son of someone important? All our leaders are the sons of someone important? So forget the Ragnarsson bit of his name. What we then have is someone called Halfdan, or Helfdan, or Halfdin, or even Alban in Old Irish. He is also known by his nickname Havitzirk, an Old Norse word meaning white shirt. Since there were plenty of gentlemen running around at the time named Halfdan, Hvitserk seems to be a good way to identify our suspect going forward. Why white shirt? Maybe he was great at cleaning. Or maybe there is an actual huge other reason which I'll get into in a moment. Now, whenever you see the standard biography of Halfdan white shirt, uh, they declare that he was this big, bad leader of the great heathen army, then they stop talking about him and tell the story of the great heathen army from 865 when it arrived until around 870 or so. And then they come back to the story of Whiteshirt as one of its leaders. And they do this because Halfdan Whiteshirt wasn't a leader before 870. For me, this is indicative that he was elected as a leader by forces about five years into their campaign. And we can see the moment he becomes a leader, and also how complicated reconstructing events can become. So back in 869, when the Vikings invaded East Anglia, they were led by two men, someone called Uba and someone called Ivor, who is better known to the fans of a certain TV show as Ivor the Boneless. By 870, the Vikings had taken East Anglia, and Ivor disappears from Anglo-Saxon records. But many believe 
that he simply returned to the North Gale Diaspora headquarters of Dublin. Here he becomes king of the community and rules until 873. The confusion stems from the fact that in Ireland he was called Imar, and we're of course not dealing with just differing sources here, but differing sources in completely differing languages. By the way, I say many agree that Ivor the Boneless returned to Dublin, but there are some who say he didn't and may have been around for a few more years. Anyway, with Ivor gone, Mr. Halfdan Whiteshirt is named as the new leader, or one of the new leaders, of the force that then goes and invades Wessex, which we covered in the last chapter, and eventually kills King Alfred's older brother and previous king, and is paid off by Alfred to leave. Are you with me so far? Awesome because that was the easy bit. Sorry. So it was this Halfdan who supposedly led the Vikings back from Reading into London, and was the designated leader of the Vikings in 872 when they overwintered in or around London, which again we covered last chapter. And this Halfdan was now nominally the overlord of London for that winter, and interestingly enough, we know that the mint in Ludenwick decided to produce a series of coins for Halfdan, based on old Roman designs, during the time he stayed there. The next spring, the Vikings left, and Halfdan is still this big figure, and as we just described in 873 and 74, these forces end up in Repton, and Burgrid is seemingly driven from the country. And Halfdan was probably involved in that. Yet at this point, this Viking horde that had rampaged for eight, nearly nine years, splits into two, under two separate leaders. The split between the Vikings represents the last time the Vikings of the Diaspora ever moved around in a single horde. For some, this was caused because they believe someone important died in Repton in 873, some unifying figure that kept the Vikings together. For them, that important person must be Ivor the Boneless, and thus they maintain that Ivor was still around at this time and wasn't in Dublin, and therefore Ivor and Imar of Dublin were two different souls. The problem with that theory is, well, the army didn't split into equal camps. Most of the veterans went with Halfdan. The faction that stayed was the minority. Whatever the case, in 873, Halfdan leads a faction away, back up north. And for me, what happens next suggests that we finally see proof that he and his men were probably all based in and around the Irish Sea. Because we have to just stop for a second. In this podcast dedicated to all things London, and talk about another city for a few minutes. Sorry, it is important. This other city in Britain, and the importance of this city, was to have a huge impact upon London again and again and again over the centuries to come. In many ways, this city was London's only true rival for being the capital of this island, the ancient and blood-soaked city of York. Originally a Roman town, York becomes the focus of Viking attention repeatedly over this entire era. And it would seem obvious at first why. I mean, if you're sailing from Scandinavia, 
York's the easiest place to get to, right? Well, no, it isn't. Indeed, if you were sailing from Denmark, say, the easiest place to get to is Kent. So the city the Vikings should be focusing upon is Rochester. London is, was infinitely more easier to get to from Denmark than York. Even East Anglia's trade ports like Ipswich were easier to get to. So that isn't it. Sure, if you're sailing from Norway, yes, I suppose York is easier. But that wasn't why York became the focus of so many Viking attacks. Indeed, to understand it, you have to make a disconnection in your head right now. When you imagine a map of the Viking attacks upon Britain, we always draw arrows coming from Scandinavia to the British Isles, because that's where the Vikings came from, right? No, no. The invasion route was just as often coming the other way. The origins of these invasions wasn't the North Sea, but the Irish Sea. And proof of that comes from the importance of York. Because you can only understand just how incredibly important York is if you're a Viking based in the Irish Sea. Bear with me here. If you can find a map, or follow the one I'll supply with a rough script I'm going to post on Imager, and look at the geography of where Dublin is. You can see that if you were some Scandinavian merchant looking to sell on a fresh batch of Pictish slaves that will generate a huge profit for you in the rich markets of your Scandinavian homelands, you've got one of three ways to access these markets. The first, you sail out of Dublin and turn right and sail south along the Irish Sea between Wales and Ireland. You then have to cope with a route that takes you past the Bristol Channel, which is a heck of a tidal estuary, out towards the Atlantic south coast of Ireland, which even today can give sailors nightmares, sail all the way around Cornwall, again playing with North Atlantic currents and weather systems. You then turn up the English Channel with Brittany on one side, and at this point Brittany was not run by the North, so it's not friendly territory, and you've got Wessex on the other, also not friendly territory, before you find potential safe ports within the North Diaspora communities in northern Francia, and certainly in Frisia, and then finally you'll arrive in Danish waters after at least a week or so at sea. Or you could take the second route, sail out of Dublin and turn left and go north. This is safer territory. The north-scale communities of the Isle of Man and the west coast of Scotland and the Scottish Isles would provide you places to stop along the way as you sail around the inner routes through the Scottish Islands, hoping the North Atlantic weather is not being too rough. Then you race across the top of Scotland, aiming for the Orkney Islands, take a brief break there, and when the weather's turned in your favour, the long stretch across the North Sea to Norway. Again, we're talking at least a week's journey, and then to get to the rich markets, you're still going to have to sail south. But there was a third way. You just sail directly across the Irish Sea to the west coast of England, along the region later known as roughly Lancashire. Here you'll find rivers like the Ribble, which can take your ships and you can sail or row up those rivers. 
Within a day of leaving Dublin, you'd find yourself at a point where the rivers become too narrow and shallow for your longships. But from there, if you walk inland for maybe another day at most, you'll find other rivers and maybe other ships or maybe you had the slaves you're taking with you to carry your ship for you. But once you get on those rivers, those rivers allow you to get to York. York now is only two or three days from Dublin and it's less than a week sailing from York to the major ports. And in time, it became the Norse trade emporium, the Viking version of what London was. So really, all you needed to do was get to York and hey presto, you are now plugged in to the Scandinavian European trade network. So, from the point of view of hardcore economics and real politique, for the Norse Gael diaspora of the Irish Sea to survive and thrive, they needed to control York. And this is why the Vikings attacking York becomes route one for every Viking army, basically from this moment going forward. And perhaps this finally explains why the riverways on the west coast of northern England are the places we find more Viking hordes than anywhere else in Britain. This was the most important route for the diaspora of the Irish Sea. Some historians have said this was behind an, an attempt by Halfdan and others to build an imperium of some kind. Imperium or emporium, either way, York, Jorvik, was crucial for the diaspora of the Irish Sea, and thus it becomes the focus of the Viking campaigns over at least the next century to come. So, returning to our second suspect and finishing his tale, and thank you for joining me on this somewhat wild tangent about York and Dublin, we see Halfdan Whiteshirt immediately return north from Repton with his half of the Vikings, and then immediately open an offensive campaign against the Picts and the Britons living in the quasi-independent kingdom of Strathclyde, which just happened to be the only non-Norse-Gale diaspora kingdom operating on the Irish Sea at the time. Halfdan Whiteshirt may have occupied London once, but his focus was on controlling the Irish Sea. We see further proof soon afterwards, because by 875, the Viking King of Dublin, a man called Eystein Olofsson, was, quote, deceitfully killed, unquote, according to the annals of Ulster, by a person the Irish called Alban, who we know I've already said, that's Halfton Whiteshirt. So the Viking, who had basically run London in the winter of 872 and 73, was by 875, now over in Dublin, taking the title of King of Dublin, which wasn't really a title, it's just a shorthand way the Irish would explain the overlord of most of these bloody Vikings. And where it gets even more confusing, and trust me, I am simplifying matters here, is that the king he killed, Eastin Olofsson, 
was supposedly the son of Olaf the White, who I mentioned last chapter, and Olaf was supposedly the brother of Ivor the Boneless or Imar of Dublin, and our Halfdan White shirt was said to be Olaf's other brother, which means him killing Eysteen was him killing his nephew, which is maybe why the historians of Ireland said the murder was done deceitfully. Whatever the case, Halfdan supposedly destroyed the only Irish sea-based resistance to total Norse domination, and then takes the title of King of Dublin, overlord of all the Vikings of the Irish Sea, and then, and only then, returns with his men to Northumbria in 876, and they settle the region, and he is named the King of Jurvik. See? Controlling York and Dublin as a single unit is the key. Of course, no sooner has he done this than the Vikings in Dublin rebel against him again, and in 877 he has to sail back to reclaim it, gets as far as Strangford Lock, meets a rival army, and he's killed. It does sound like some kind of vicious internal feud within an organised crime cartel, doesn't it? And maybe that's the best way to see it. The Viking diaspora had been created by Scandinavians who had sailed away from home and created a place where they were able to kind of rampage for free without overlords or rulers or kings. And this Halfdan White shirt, and by extension his brothers Ivor the Boneless and Olaf the White and maybe his nephew, Eystein, son of Olaf, were all trying to change that. Were they one big power-hungry family? Maybe. As I said last time, they may literally have not been blood brothers, but a band of brothers, a bunch of mob bosses elevated by their followers, and all we're seeing is them jostling for position. Halfdan Whiteshirt sleeps with the fishes. I could go on and on about this, but we're getting further and further away from London. So let's end Halfdan's story by merely saying with his death in 877, the Vikings of Northumbria remained kingless until 833. But he started something that we'll see repeated again and again over the years to come. Oof, two suspects down, two to go. I'm going to end this episode here. There is a part two, and the part two will be out very soon, like within a few hours or at the day at most. I'm just editing it together. Thanks for listening, and we'll carry on with the special two-parter, Who Killed Londonwick, in the next episode of The Story of London. <laughs>